Well, good morning, LCM. Today is Sunday, June 7th, 2020, and I hope you've been having as much fun as we have been having the last few weeks. Oh, yeah, we have. In fact, our Monday night classes, Wednesday and Sunday sermons, they've all worked to inform you the way you study your Bible and view the celestial realm, haven't they? In fact, the Lord has been good to us, and he's laying out revelation in a way that we can we should make a lasting impact on our understanding as well as your performance in his kingdom. Amen. Come on. There have been six kingdom building blocks. There have been six integrated units. There have been six messages that were all aimed towards one ending point. Today's message, our seventh message. Mm. So you mm. worked hard all week to hit this Sabbath. You don't get to rest while we preach, but you're about to get a, another revelation. Do you want another revelation? Yes. Our message today is in the Going on the Offensive series, and it is called Spiritual Geographical War. Oh, yeah. In order to put these pieces together, we're going to need to look back at a few things that you've learned so far because they haven't come from your grandmother's Sunday school class. <laughs> <laughs> These have been some innovative topics, some rediscovering ancient truths, and we want to help you put the pieces together. Amen. So as we begin to put these pieces together, we want to draw your attention back to star power. Somebody say star power. Star power. Where we were talking about the very same power, that fusion power that runs suns, that runs the stars that we get to be a part of. See, because each of us were called to be glorified. Yeah, we were. We were also, and we learned that to replace, that we were going to get to replace the disloyal beings that were there in the heavens. That this is going to be accomplished through the nation of Israel, God's chosen inheritance. Does anybody remember star power today? Yes. Then we went on to a Monday night where we learned about the Rephaim. Somebody say Rephaim. Rephaim. Where we learned that David had to deal with the bodies of the hybrid enemies, but that the Davidic son showed us how to deal with their disembodied spirits. And lastly, on that main topic that we learned was that very plainly stated, we learned that the Rephaim are where we get the demons from. Oh. It's a good thing that the subjects that we've been covering, you can just Google and find anywhere, right? <laughs> no, we need some help putting these pieces together. Let's go to our next slide and see how this continues. Y'all remember the message, Star Wars? Oh, say Star Wars. Star Wars. Well, in this message... We learn that the last of the Rephaite kings ruled in a place called Hermon. Hermon, said with proper eloquence here. <laughs> At this place, Hermon was the site of the first recorded angelic defection. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. Hey, then we progressed in that sermon of Star Wars to know that we are required to put every enemy under our feet as Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses. Oh, but it didn't stop there. We continued on to stratagems of Satan, where we learned that Lord declared war on his enemies through the human race, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah, and most specifically, the family of David. Let's continue with understanding the enemy knows and understood each declaration that God made and opposed the declarations with at least 12 kinds of satanic stratagem. And finally, we learned that Jesus has put the enemy underfoot, more importantly, under your foot, 
which is the other shoe that must stand on his head. Come on, do you want your feet on the head of the enemy? Yes. Then as we got to the being, as in the entity behind the curtain, we had to unlearn some things. In fact, we found out that John Milton's Paradise Lost was a poem that was written that misled many believers into accepting a view of Satan that is clearly not demonstrable in the Bible. It introduced many bad ideas that Christian took as fact, even though the poem was fictional. Much like the Tim LaHaye series today. Then we moved on to look at what Satan's demonstrable function was. From the beginning of his appearance in the scripture all the way through the end, he functions as something like a district attorney or a prosecutor. That can be demonstrated from his appearance in Job all the way to Luke 22, which is hours before the crucifixion, where he is still asking the Father to sift Peter. Come on. All of this pointed us to a defined time in history that the Bible, without consulting works of fiction, the actual Bible, (laughs) places the violent expulsion of Satan. I want to emphasize to you that he didn't slip, he didn't fall, he got tossed out like a bum that does not pay rent from the heavens. (laughs) It was a public spectacle that was made of him, and Colossians 2.15 places that at the cross And so did all of the other scriptures in that message. The last time we were all together, we built on that topic with a message called Forecasting the 70. Although God had disinherited Gentile nations in Deuteronomy 32 and Deuteronomy 4, throughout the Tanakh we saw his desire to reclaim those nations. That he would start with the family of David, the tribe of Judah, That he would move through the nation of Israel and eventually regather the human race. Although there are many examples that forecasted that, everything from the 70 burning lights of the 10 menorah in Solomon's temple so that my father's house would be a house of prayer for all nations, to the number of bulls that were sacrificed at the Feast of Sukkot in Numbers 29. Sukkot always followed the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, Israel would be saved. And then after Israel's salvation, sacrifices were made for the entire world that they might come into what Israel had. Amen. We also in that message examined Luke 10. And we noticed the imperfect tense of a Greek verb. It's not that Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning eons ago, but rather... In the hours prior to the statement, he was watching Satan lose his self-proclaimed rulership. Now I say self-proclaimed because nowhere in the Bible does God give Satan the kingdoms of the world. And although 2,000 years of preaching have said Adam did it, you'll find out disobedience makes it possible, but the only thing that God actually distributed was the nations to foreign powers, foreign deities, And those deities misled them. It's not until we get all the way to Luke 4 that you find out Satan was the being behind that movement. He was manipulating those. Which made Luke 10 so special. Because for the first time in human history, you have 70 empowered sons of God. One for each nation. And they are going and taking back from the enemy what he had stolen. 
All of these events came to their culmination at Pentecost. Pentecost was really a full-scale invasion, a reversal of the Tower of Babel. God made His Spirit available for every son of God that wanted to be an empowered witness, and the Jewish nation had come from the nations of the world to be filled with this power at Pentecost, and after being filled, they would go back. This represents a reversal of the events at the Tower of Babel. We're reclaiming the nations for the glory of God. Would you all like to get into our message this morning? Are you sure? If you're not that excited about it, we could go do something else. You're excited about it then. Amen. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me know you're there when you're there. Amen. Even Cassidy's here. <laughs> yeah, girl. First Corinthians 2. Stay on track, Pastor Matthew. Stay on track. First Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Yeah. Yeah. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers, how many? None. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This passage seems to make it clear to me that the heavenly powers did not understand God's plan. But as I've taught that from about 1996 forward, I consistently get some questions about it. Like, hey, couldn't these rulers just be the earthly rulers? After all, it says the rulers of this age. Couldn't we be speaking about the Romans and the Romans didn't understand what they were doing? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) The context of the passage itself suggests that a spiritual message is being delivered. It would be extraordinarily redundant to say that the Romans didn't understand a spiritual message. (laughs) Having said that, I do want to examine this word, archon. And there's a reason for it, and Pastor Wade's going to walk you through it. And by the end of the message, you will know for sure what kind of rulers we are talking about. You see on the slide here on the screen, this is New Testament number in the Greek, 758. So you can go look this up, and we've already studied it and help you along in understanding it. The word is archon. Everybody say archon. Archon. A Greek word, archon. It's You see the definitions of it down at the bottom. It's usually interpreted as chief or chief ruler, a magistrate, a prince, or a ruler. Somebody say ruler. Ruler. See, so when we're talking about this, what we're trying to figure out is if this specific usage of Archon in a particular passage, are we talking about a heavenly or an earthly ruler? A heavenly or earthly Archon? Are we talking about someone that is celestial or someone that is terrestrial? See, the case is when you're looking through the the large usage of the word, it could be both. But what we're going to show you today in a few passages that we've already covered, is the fact that the archon, the word archon, could only be understood, somebody say only. Only. Only be understood as celestial powers in some places. Let us help you to find this. Let's go to our next slide to see this. You guys will remember this slide that we have from previous messages. 
And we learn from this the chronology of the fall of Satan. Do you guys remember this slide? Well, let me, lay, let me lay this out for you. John 12, referenced here on the slide, we see Satan called an archon. And the timing of his judgment is placed at the crucifixion. In fact, in John 14, Satan is called an archon as well. And he has no power over Jesus. And then lastly, John 16, Satan is called again an archon that now, and hours before the, the crucifixion, he is pronounced and determined to be condemned. Friends, this chronology is not something that is often understood. And that's why we're revisiting it so that you get it at no point in human history. At no point in the biblical drama before John 12 was the archon that we have come to know as Satan driven out. At no point in world history before John 14 was the archon of this world said to have no hold on Jesus. At no point before John 16 do you ever hear the phrase, He now stands condemned. Now let me ask you a basic question. Are we talking about Romans here? Are we talking about Jewish magistrates here? We are clearly talking about a celestial ruler. Somebody of divine origin that holds power. These are the rulers that did not understand the plan of the crucifixion. By the way, John 13 through John 16 all occur on Jesus' last day. Would you like to see this get even more clear? Yes. Let's go to Ephesians 2 together and you let me know when you were there. Y'all sound like a mother soothing her itty-bitty baby. There, 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 there. Give me a there. There we go. Ephesians 2, 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That word is the archon of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Wow. Ephesians 2 makes it abundantly clear that any authority that Satan is supposed as having is derived from one thing. Evil behavior. Disobedience. You mustn't think of his kingdom as a kingdom that is neatly ordered with rank and file. It is based on manipulating those who are disobedient. They usually won't even know why they're doing what they're doing. He dangles something they want, and they do what he wants to get it. Now this passage both calls Satan an archon and implies his dominion is presently between the heavens and the earth in the space that we call air. Now an astute Bible student might recognize that Genesis 1-7, when God made the expanse that we're calling air, never calls it good. He simply says it was so. This is because God has had a plan from the beginning to expose Satan, but Satan was unaware of it, and God took his time giving Satan enough rope to hang himself. <laughs> Before we leave Ephesians 2, from these six messages that you've had, what we want you to begin to picture is the celestial powers that are lesser gods that are in rebellion to him. And Satan is not clearly their head. It's not as if 
God said, Satan, you will rule over these. He gave the 70 nations to the 70 lesser gods. And Satan reveals in Luke 4 that he was the one working behind the scenes to get them to do what they did. But that was never given to him. Church, are you getting what we're talking to you about today? I know that this is dense material, but so far we've been recapping for you. We're beginning the process of stepping forward into something new here where we can see Ephesians 2 so clearly saying that the spirit of disobedience is ushered in, is manipulated like a marionette puppet that the archon of the ruler of this kingdom of the age, the archon of the kingdom of the air is the one that is behind these things. Now we're going to go into some lesser known passages here in just a second, but we want to talk to you and let you know that these are some intriguing passages you got to put your, uh, your big boy attitude on. It's time for us to get into the book of Leviticus, chapter 20. Let's all turn there. Woo! Be like a naval expedition right here. That's true. That's true. <laughs> You'll figure that out in just a second. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 1. Come on, somebody say Archon when you're there. Thank you, Nick. That was excellent. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites. Now get ready. This is God speaking to Moses, and he's about to give a message. And I want you to hear this message. Any Israelite or any alien living in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech. Somebody say Molech. Molech. Anyone who gives any of his children to Molech must be put to death. You think God is starting off in a serious tone here? The people of the community are to stone him. I will set my face against that man, and I will cut him off from his people. For by giving his children to Molech, somebody say Molech. Molech. He has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. If the people of the community close their eyes when that man gives one of his children to Molech, somebody say Molech. Molech. And they fail to put him to death. I will set my face against that man and his family and will cut off from their people, both him and all who follow him in prostituting themselves to Molech. Somebody say Molech. Man, this is a serious situation that we have set up here. Over and over in repetition, God is speaking something through Moses because he wants his people to get it. He's saying, if you do this, you're going to die. If you allow it, those people are going to die. God is very, very serious about this. And it's very explicit in both the Hebrew and in the English of what God's desires are. Now, what we find out in this passage is that the Edom nation, the nation of Edom has a God over it, has an archon over it named Molech. See, and he is working. There are powerful things that are at work to seduce the Israelites. Somebody say seduce. Seduce. There is a seducing nature to what Molech is trying to do to the Israelites to give him their children. Come on. No, what you really need to do is hand them over to me. No, I won't do that. Come on, let me, let me show you why you need to do that. There is a seducing that is going on here. Now let's look into the Septuagint to find out what the 70 Hebrew scholars translated this very passage for the Greek-speaking world. Okay, are you ready? These are 70 Hebrew scholars, and this is how they translated it into Greek so that everyone in the world during the time of Alexander could understand what the Bible meant. Are you ready? Here we go. And to the sons of Israel, you shall speak. This is verse 2. If any from the sons of Israel... Or of the ones being foreigners in Israel, who should ever give his semen to a chief god. Those are not sailors. Not the sailor kind. 
who should give his semen to a chief god, you will notice that that Greek word there is archon. To death let him be put to death. The nation, the people upon the land shall stone him with stones. In this passage, Molech is replaced with the word archon. And when translated into English, you see it right here. It says, to the chief God. This is what verse 2 teaches us. Let's look at this in the next slide of verse 3. And we'll read it. And I will set my face against that man. And I will destroy him from out of his people. For of his semen he gave to a chief God, an archon, that he should defile my holy place and should profane the name, the one having been sanctified to me. To me. Again, Molech's name is replaced with the term archon. And it is said in this verse that if you are seduced into worshiping this spiritual power, it profanes God's name and defiles the holy place. We're going to go through each of these verses, and some of this is repetitive because we want to make sure you understand a few things. Let's read verse 4. And if in disdain should overlook this native born of the land with their eyes, of that man in his giving his semen to a chief god, strong 758, Archon, you should kill him. In every instance, Molech is not even mentioned. When the Hebrew people translated this for the Greek world, the name of the idol was not important. What they wanted you to know is there is a celestial ruler over these people, and that is what God is concerned with, not a wooden statue. So the sticking your head in the sand Christian view of monotheism that simply says there is only God and there is nothing else is less than half the truth. There is only one God worth worshiping. There is only one God that is the God of Israel. There is only one God that is most high. There are many other spiritual powers that could be thought of as God. In fact, the scripture calls them Elohim. But they are not worth worshiping. They do not have the attributes of Yahweh. And Yahweh will be victorious over them. Here, it is said that even if a foreigner among the Israelites, so he's not Israel, a foreigner among the Israelites gives something personal of himself to this archon, he should be killed. That is because God was associated with the land of Israel and the people of Israel. And when you stepped into his territory, it had to be his rules. Come on. Now the Bible's going to reveal his territory expands rapidly. Let's look at verse 5 for the fourth verse in a row so you can understand this completely. Then I shall set my face against that man and his kin, and I will destroy him and all the ones consenting with him. Wow. But I didn't do it. But you allowed it. But I, but I wasn't the one that did it. Yeah, but you were the one standing there filming something as it was happening. Oh, come on. The one consenting with him so as far, listen, so as far, so as for them to fornicate with the archons of their people. See, once again, Molech is replaced with the word archon. And the God of Israel, listen to this church, considers the seduction of his people as fornicating with a real spiritual entity called an archon. Wow. Come on, that should give us an, a new understanding of what the Bible is all about. Absolutely. 
Listen, Saints, as we turn to another revelatory passage in the Torah, we will be discussing Balak having hired Balaam to curse Israel. And to help you understand what we're about to encounter, you must know that surely Balak, who was an earthly king, he had the ability to assess the troop strength of Israel and then determine physically whether he had the troop strength to prevail in war against Israel. However, Balaam was brought in as a seer to assess Israel in the spiritual realm and then determine whether they or not they could be cursed so that Balak's gods could overcome the national god of Israel. This was a spiritual assessment. Let's go to Numbers 23 and we'll look at verse 18. Numbers 23, verse 18. Then he uttered his oracle. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie. Amen. Nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob. No misery observed in Israel. The Lord, their God, is with them. The shout of the king is among them. Do you hear the declaration that Balaam is making? See, we ought to understand that both the Hebrew and English indicate Balaam's assessment that determined that Balak and his gods would not be able to overcome the nation of Israel and their God. This gets even more fun when you look at it in more than one language. Sometimes I am so thankful for the English. Other times I am so thankful for the Hebrew text behind it. You know what's better than English and Hebrew? To also have Greek so that we can triangulate between the three. It helps you walk all the way around complicated subjects and they become vivid and beautiful. Let's look at this one in the Greek. This is Numbers 23-21. There shall not be trouble in Jacob. Nor shall appear misery in Israel. The Lord, his God, is with him. The honorable ones of the archon are with him. Where the Hebrew and the English tell us the shout of a king is with them. The Greek explains it. The Greek tells us why Balak would not be able to prevail. With Yahweh were holy and honorable heavenly rulers... Not everything in the heavens defected. Some in the heavens were loyal. And friends, we are called to join their ranks. The shout of a king is with them. Now if Balak had been left just to count the number of men in Israel, he could determine. There's ten of us, there's six of them. I think if we surprise them, we can take them. But they knew that Israel's strength was Israel's God. So he hired somebody who could look into the heavens and say, Hey man, would you size this up for me? Balaam must have been trembling. You won't believe what is with (laughs) Yahweh and His people. There is an army of celestial rulers and they are in a foot-stomping mood. You cannot overcome them. I want to tell you, this is a united war cry. This is the shout of a king. 
When men and women of God do the will of God, it is the shout of a king. It is like Jericho's trumpet to your mouth. Mm. Honorable sons and daughters of God, rise to become rulers in the heavenly realm. Honorable Archon will come with God to judge the earth. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 32 together. In the very chapter... Deuteronomy 32, where Moses begins to explain the disinheritance of the 70 nations. God also makes a promise to deal with their gods or their archon. Come on, say archon when you get to Deuteronomy 32. Let's begin in verse 39. It says, see now that I myself am he. So let's help you with the context. This is God speaking. This is God Himself speaking. See now that it I, I myself am He. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. Now we're trying to encourage you, we're trying to do the best that we can today to let you break free. Whether it was Milton's Paradise Lost that defines what you think about hell and Satan, or some passive, pansy kind of thoughts that you grew up with that God is only a perfect gentleman. That the Holy Spirit is a divine gentleman asking you politely to do what he would like. He says, I put to death and I bring to life. He is the sovereign of the universe. He is a warrior unlike any other. And he's saying, I am he. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. No one on earth. No one under earth. No one above the earth. No one can do and undo what I've done. I lift my hand to heaven. Wow, what do you think about that? That almost sounds like he's making a pledge or a vow. I think it means something more, and I'll show you here in just a second. I lift my hand to heaven and declare, as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword, when my hand grasps the sword in judgment, when he reaches up to start bringing things down in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries. And repay those who hate me. Man, we sang that song. We closed in worship today with that song. That the idea that God, those who hate Him, those who hate God, those who hate what God stands for, He will judge them. He will repay them for their hatred. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Come on now, church. God is speaking. He, His own words, written down through Moses, is telling us that what He's like. He said, no one can stop it once I start. I will reach up and grab my sword and begin to bring judgment. And when you do, you will dread what you have done. You will dread the fact that you have not acknowledged me or who what I'm about. See, God is saying, I have dominion over all. I have dominance over every archon. I have dominance over every stronghold. I have dominance over every single person who should ever try to stand against me. That should encourage us today beyond description. That you are not judging some fairy tale God, some lip-wristed leader of the world. You are serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the warrior of all warriors. See, here in the last passage, we see that the slain and the captives... See, he's not just talking about the heads of these leaders, not just the archon that are above them. He's even talking about the ones who have been deceived into following him. These slain and captives are the deceived ones versus even the archon in that last phrase, the heads of the enemies. We want to take a look at that last phrase in the Greek, and we have it here on the screen for you. This is Deuteronomy 32, 42 in the Septuagint. 
I shall intoxicate my arrows of blood, and my sword shall devour meats from the blood of the slain, and from the captivity of the heads of the archon, of the rulers of the enemies. So he says here in the Greek, it emphasizes that there are captives, and then there are the archon that are leading them, the ones God deals with first. And you can see the concept of spiritual warfare and that it's not derived from the Newer Testament, but has been the shape of battle from at least Genesis 6 and moving forward. Well, let me give you a couple New Testament ideas that are not New Testament ideas. Jesus is the head of all in the heavens and we are his body on earth. Amen? Amen. New Testament idea? No, not really. In fact, the anti-type of that you're seeing right here. Molech is a head in the celestial realms and his body is the seduced followers of Molech on earth. And when God judges them, he punches to the head and then the body. God takes out the celestial beings that are not holy, not right. And then he deals with their followers. In the Bible, there are real spiritual heads of nations, and the nations are the shoulders, body, feet, and in some nations, even the pits. <laughs> so look, when you're thinking of this head idea, it might bring to mind passages that you've overlooked. Like 1 Samuel 5-4, where Dagon, the national god of the Philistines, the archon above the Philistines, is facing the ark of God. What happened to Dagon? He fell over and his head and hands fell off. This is God's way of saying, I own the God who owns you. I can do what I want to him at will. I'm coming for you. But first, I'm going to slap him around some. I kind of love that our God, according to Psalm 78, is a warrior that awakes from wine. That he drives back his enemies. I love that our God is a warrior. The more you grab hold of that concept, the more you will understand something is required of you. I'd like to show you this in the prophets in a quick way. That way you can see that this is consistent throughout the Bible. This would be Isaiah 34, verses 5 and 6. My sword has drunk its fill in the... Heavens. Yeah. In the heavens. God's sword starts in the heavens. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment. What does it do in judgment? On Edom, the people I have totally destroyed, the sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. I want you to understand that this event that is happening at Basra is the coming of the Lord that is pictured, but he starts by judging the gods in the heavens, and then he moves to the earth. This pattern was established in Exodus. On the night that I passed through Egypt to destroy the first down, firstborn in Exodus 12, 12, I will judge the gods of Egypt. We have a God who punches to the head yeah. and then the body. Throughout the prophets, God is seen as judging the archon in the celestial realms and then judging the bodies made up of their seduced members on earth below. His judgment is viewed as descending, not rising. 
Church, as we move to the writings, you're going to remember that the Lord had a divine council meeting with these lesser Elohims and pronounced a judgment on them for seducing the Gentile nations away from Yahweh. Let me read this passage to you. In Psalm 82, 7, we'll put it on the screen. It says this, but you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Do you see both of those instances there? We have another picture of the heavens and the earth. Mere men and you will fall like every other archon. You're going to die like the men, but you're going to also fall like anyone who has ever tried to oppose the Lord Himself. Any archon who has ever tried to lead a revolt against Him, you're going to fall like those. See, similar, this should bring to mind a, a Psalm 2 kind of moment. And even when it's quoted in Acts 4, where the kings of the earth are judged and their archon take their stand against the Lord, But anytime an archon takes a stand against the Lord, it is always to the peril and the demise of that archon. Church, we need you to understand that we're laying out plainly uh, the gods of the nations. The archon of the nations are real spiritual entities with real seduced followers. And look, know for certain that they are tied to real geographies. Are you guys seeing that being put together? Well, also understand that the Most High is the God of the land of Israel, as well as the people of the land of Israel. And Yahweh and His followers will defeat the opposing archon over specific lands and peoples. So let's go to Psalm 68 to look at this. Are you all awake for this? Because I promise you don't know it. Would you like to see a picture of a heavenly battle that is not in the book of Revelation? Yes. Are you sure you can handle the truth? This is Psalm 68. I'll be reading from the ESV just to make Pastor Massey in Chicago happy. Psalm 68, beginning in verse 15. O mountain of God. Anybody want to guess how you translate that in Hebrew? O mountain of Elohim. Now, Elohim is a word that's plural already. And when it speaks about the one true God, then it means God is in most high God and is capitalized. When it doesn't, when it speaks about the lesser gods, it's spelled exactly the same way. And this is a translator's choice. So you're going to have to decide, should this be read, O mountain of God or O mountain of the gods? You keep that in mind as we move forward. O mountain of God, or mountain of Elohim, mountain of Bashan. Now what happened at Bashan that you've learned in the previous messages? Oh, that's, that's right! Bashan is where the book of Enoch says 200 Benaiha Elohim descended on a mountain. Bashan is the kingdom that the Rephaite giant warlord Og ruled and Joshua had to kill. Well, let's just keep that in mind. O mountain of Elohim, mountain of Bashan. O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. By the way, the many-peaked mountain in this area is Hermon. The Mount Hermon means mountain devoted to destruction. Anathema. Let's go back again. O mountain of Elohim, mountain of Bashan. O many-peaked mountain, which is Hermon. Mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. You ready for it? 
The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Mm. You ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. When you consider the double meaning of the word Elohim, It looks to me like God is standing on Sinai looking at the mountain of the lesser gods and he's saying, that mountain, (laughs) I'm going to take it. And the very next scene is he is at Sinai and that is the sanctuary and he's got thousands times thousands with him and he's like, let's go get it. (laughs) This is invasion language. In fact... It even has him receiving gifts from men. Do you know what that is in ancient warfare? Captives. He is going and taking captives from Bashan. God is viewed at Sinai in the south, probably Saudi Arabia. And he is descended on it and it's his sanctuary. And you know what he's looking? The direction Israel's enemies always come from. Dead north. And he is looking towards Bashan, looking at Hermon. And he said, hey... I have made this mountain my sanctuary, and you little girls are next. And he invades Bashan. Do you know why I know that this is a spiritual battle? Because no battle like this ever happened anywhere in Israel's recorded history. There was never a battle on Mount Hermon that looked anything like this. This is God making a declaration of war. He's calling out the lesser Elohim that have seduced the nations. And he's saying, I'm coming for you and I will receive gifts. Which gets to be beautiful. Let's go to verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up, Israel up. God is our salvation, Israel's salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of the enemy, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord says, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that you, as in his children, may strike your feet in their blood, that their tongues of your dogs may have a portion from the foe. Did y'all catch that there was a depths of sea reference in verse 22? I dare you to find a biblical map that shows a sea next to Bashan. It doesn't exist. Bashan is landlocked. Mount Hermon is landlocked. This is biblical language for a kind of watery sheol. Job 26.5 literally says that the Rephaim are being formed and moving in this area. This is spiritual imagery of an invasion of a spiritually, geographically important area. Now, do you remember that this text in Psalm 68 says that God would receive gifts from men? When you go home, One of the things that you should do today is read Ephesians 4 because it quotes Psalm 68. And instead of receiving gifts, in Psalm 68, the Apostle Paul changed the wording. He ascended on high and gave gifts to men. He didn't receive them. In Paul's view, he gave them. Now, how do you reconcile something like this? Well, God has invaded the demonic, the celestial rebellion mountain of lesser gods, 
And he brought back to his children power and dominion that they would have over that realm. He received captives and he gave his children power over them. When you read Ephesians 4, tell me that's not exactly what he's talking about. Now, because I know you're all going to go study. Ephesians 4 is about the fivefold ministry. Why? Because we are walking in dominion over that realm and it is our job to teach you to do so. Amen. I would like to remind you about this kind of double imagery. Colossians 1.13, I'm just quoting it for you. For he who has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves... Every true, genuine child of God was rescued from the dominion of darkness, wrestled from the bulls of Bashan, delivered from the dominion of these celestial beings that rebelled against God. And now you are on Team Jesus and it is your job to invade their territory. Come on, somebody say, that's really good. That's really good. See, church, today we've already seen that the Edomites have had over them an archon named Molech. We've seen in the geography that was ruled by Og, it was marked by celestial defections, and it was decimated by God. See, there may be no more specific push-shot statements about spiritual geography than what is stated in Daniel 10. Let's turn to Daniel 10. See, we want to set the stage for you while you're turning there. Remember that Daniel has been praying and fasting, and we're going to pick it up in the fourth verse to see what happens. Everyone turning to Daniel chapter 10 and verse 4. Say Archon when you're there. It says this. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Mm. Man, man, we're considering the appearance of this being that presented himself before Daniel. It would be absolutely absurd to think that we're talking about an earthly human being, some earthly ambassador. Isn't that true? And yet, if you find a commentary, if you read a commentary on this very passage, they're going to try to explain this as a non-celestial being, but some earthly man. That's ridiculous. It's because they're not trying to take the Bible in its entirety and understand it. We're not even going to talk about how ridiculous that is. But look, let's go down to verse 12. As we go to verse 12, let's recognize how abundantly clear this gets. Amen. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. So he says to start with, the unnamed spiritual being came to Daniel in response to Daniel's prayer. Secondly, he was engaged in a 21-day contest with the Archon of Persia, that prince of Persia. Thirdly, Michael, who in the Greek text, it says that he is the foremost among the Archon. Yeah, he is. He was the best. That Michael, the foremost among the Archon, came to Daniel's aid because he was detained by the Archon or the king of Persia. 
See, this passage makes it impossible to detach celestial rulers or archon from specific ge- geographies and peoples associated with them. Just to make sure this is fully sinking in, because y'all are starting to have that, uh, like gnats and flies are circulating around your open, gaping mouths. I want to hit one more passage. Daniel 10, verse 20. So he said, do you know why I have come to you? To which uh, all of us would go, nope. <laughs> Soon I will return to fight against the prince Archon in Greek, Sar in Hebrew, the Archon of Persia. And when I go, the Archon of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your Archon. Come on. When you consider that Deuteronomy 4 apportioned the nations to these defective Archon. When you consider that Deuteronomy 32 chose only Israel and said this nation, Yahweh, would lead himself. When you consider that is what is going on, you start to get a view here. Why is the prince of Persia fighting with the prince of Greece? I understand why they might both be fighting with Michael, but why do they displace each other? That's because the kingdom that you think of as Satan's kingdom is not a well-oiled machine. It's disparate, warring factions. Remember, he is a spirit of disobedience. The way that he has influence is when the prince or archon of Persia wants what he wants. And when the prince and archon of Greece wants what he wants, Satan can manipulate them into opposing a messenger of God, or he can manipulate them into opposing each other because they are based on disobedience. Now, I'm not going to take the time to tell you what that means about your behavior. Instead, what we're going to do is focus on one truth. In Luke 4, 5 through 7, Satan claimed to be the power behind these kind of events. The kingdoms of the world have been given to me. I can give them to anybody I want to. He is claiming to be the one who is pulling the strings behind the scene with the gods of the nations. That is an incredible admission. The kind of thing that if it happened in court, you would want the stenographer to get it. Colossians 2.15 emphasizes Yahweh's dominance. What Satan did was expose himself and his judgment was on the way. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. Now, I have been telling you that Satan fell at the cross. You know what else happened? Listen to these words. Powers and authorities made a public spectacle of them. Something happened in all of the celestial realm at the cross. They found out something. Oh my goodness, we have seduced people away from Yahweh. And this, this prince of princes, this king of kings, this glorified human being that has risen to the right hand, his followers are hunting us down and they're going to take him back. It was a public spectacle. When you reduce Christianity to a Disneyland in the sky, you miss the picture the Bible is painting. 
It is a warfare and a wedding story. Yeah. Church, are you getting this while we're talking to you about these spiritual things, while we're trying to elevate the word of God in your life? It's because you have to have a more, a, a, a more developed sense of understanding of what God is trying to do. This is why we mock and ridicule the idea of simply raising a pinky for salvation. You are built to be in a war. He is at war and he has made a spectacle, a public spectacle of the, the celestial realms. And he is going to do the same thing through us. He is going to empower us that we might be of the same star power that he has. Come on, think about Acts chapter 2. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Bow your heads. If anybody would like to be in the D-Day invasion of Normandy, then have the courage to raise a pinky. <laughs> Keep every eye closed, nobody looking around. If anybody here would like to charge the hill and take that flag, then have the courage to fill out a decision card. This is a ridiculous joke, saints. You can open your eyes. That is not the Bible story. You are going to have to face spiritual and physical opposition. Yes. You are called yes. to enter into their territory and take it back. That will never happen right. if in this room you are a pansy and a coward. Pray for an infilling of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Pray for the substance of the divine to come upon you. We have to do better. We're called higher than this. Amen. Come on now, you should feel something rising up on the inside of you. This is what you were made for. This is what Christianity is about. It's not a get to get you to agree with us on a few fine points of doctrine. Let us convince you that you're in trouble and you need fire insurance. Okay, great, now you're done. Go about your way and look what I've achieved in the heavens. You've achieved nothing. You have not done what you have been called to do. And what is that? Look in Acts 2.5. It says, now there were staying in Jerusalem. God fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Liv, would you put up the slide here? I want to remind you that Acts 2, it's not only about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and how we have gotten this wrong in our hearts. We've somehow made this selfish that it's about you when you get filled with the Spirit. It's about what you can do. What are you supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be getting empowered because it's heaven coming and kissing earth. It is the heavens being imparted into who you are. It is transforming you. But why? So you could go out, see where these are the regions that are listed in Acts 2. They were from all over the world. Acts 2.5 says that they were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. What did they do? They came back into Jerusalem, got empowered, and then they went out to be that power, to be that light, to be that witness in the world. Amen. See, this is what this is about. When we're talking to you about Acts 2 reversing the Tower of Babel, man, it's why that everyone there could hear their own language being spoken as if there were no more distinctions among the languages. That's why they were, they didn't have to be forced to go out. They willingly went out because of what God had done and changed them on the inside. What a weak kind of gospel that prevents this from happening. I don't know if they're ready for it yet. I just want to make this simple so a child can get it and understand. No, we're supposed to be, no, you're right to boo that. When you overly simplify the gospel and you take away the warlike element, you take away the necessity of the Spirit being at work in your life, you're not really giving them the gospel to start with. No wonder you can have people raise their hand. I was at a church 
that would proclaim thousands being saved every year and no one was growing. How can we have thousands of people coming to Christ and no one, there's no more people added in the room? There's no growth. There's no actual discipleship. But we got a hand. We got a card. That's all we need. What a ridiculous farce. I see that decision way in the back. It'll always be in the back. It'll always be <laughs> hidden. You'll be hiding behind the other troops your whole life because it's all I've ever taught you to do. Do you see yes. why? Can you understand now why, as we're presenting this truth to you, why the archons, why Satan works so hard to make this such a passive, powerless, pansy kind of gospel that needs no power. Of course you don't need power because you won on the very... You raised your pinky and you're done. How valiant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How very brave of you to do that. This picture here reminds you that we, you and I, are part of the powered, empowered sons that are reversing what Babel did all the way back in Genesis 11. Come on, church. Is this place filled with sons and daughters of the living God that are empowered by the Holy Ghost to reverse what happened at Babel? Yes. Amen. Look, I want to remind you in Genesis 11, the entire world seduced by celestial forces had rebelled against the one true God of the heavens. That's true. And God's solution to this very problem was to send his loyal sons. Those loyal sons empowered by the Holy Ghost to displace those celestial forces, those rebellious celestial forces in every geographic region. See, not only would they dislodge these celestial forces from particular regions and liberate their people, they would also end up glorified, ruling, and reigning with the Christ in these very regions. Look, as you stare at that map before we go to our next area of, of emphasis, it's important for you to understand that celestial sons of God, Benaiha Elohim, were disloyal. If you haven't gotten that in the last six messages, go back and listen to the recordings. You need an awful lot of help, and we love you and we want you to get it, but you're going have to have to try. Those celestial disloyal sons are replaced by loyal sons that are born of the earth and the heavens, and they end up glorified as God's ruling agency on earth. But understand something. You have to take the earth back. Amen. Amen. Heaven, I'll die and I go to heaven. Heaven is a very temporary thing. The Bible presents heaven as enveloping the earth. In Psalm 68 earlier when I was reading, Sinai, the mountain, was in Side the sanctuary of God in that psalm. I don't know whether you caught that. Heaven wraps itself around the earth because his sons make this the dominion of our God. Yeah. That's what the Bible's actually about. You can be a fat naked baby on a cloud, on a cloud playing a harp if you want to. It's a deception. It, I mean, you can set your whole, whole hope on that and just dying and going to heaven, but you will have absolutely nothing in common with the actual sons of God or the Bible story. Wow. And it doesn't matter that it's the same dribble that you have repeated and heard repeated for 2,000 years. It's still dribble. I, I defy anybody in this room to find the verse that says, when I decide for Christ, die and go to heaven. You will never find anything like that. And that is because this is a war story from beginning to end. And it's also 
a love story. The father loves Amen. his sons. He wants the sons to be like him, overcoming victorious warriors. Are you ready for very practical implications for those of you that are, that are bored with the actual Bible story? We would like to bring this down to how it applies in your life. Okay? We're going to transition to the most practical of all elements. But you have to, you have to grasp a few things that Paul says to understand any of this. And we've been preaching about them off and on now for six or seven messages. They're all going to relate to Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 6. Eventually, we're going to get a slide so that you can put those things together. But I want to start with you in Ephesians 1 and verse 18. Amen. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you. Listen, knowing what you know right now, the hope to which He has called you. Hey brother, all you have to do is believe on Jesus. Stop telling people that. That is not true. Hey brother, if, if you'll just confess with your mouth, that's not true either. And I'm going to get to that before this message is over. You need to stop your dime store novel, uh, track distribution, petty examples of the gospel. That's like telling somebody, all you have to do is want to be a soldier and you will win World War II. It is not true. Paul prayed that the Ephesian church, say Ephesian. Ephesian. The Ephesian church would understand the heights to which they were called. If it was as simple as, oh, raise a pinky, you'll go to heaven. Then he wouldn't have to pray for them to understand that at all. He wants them to have insight so that it will inform their daily life. Amen. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. This is not Disneyland in the sky. This is the destiny of a believer to become God's government. That is Amen. our destiny. The gospel is not a children's nursery rhyme. It is the destiny of every true believer to be the inherited government of God ruling the heavens and the earth. Now that we might have to pray for you to get insight into. Come on now. <laughs> All you have to do is believe that we don't need any prayer to get insight into. Well, when you die, you'll go to heaven. It's what mama said. It's what grandma said. It's what great grandma said. You don't need any insight to that. You can write that on a bubblegum wrapper and that's about what it's worth. But understanding that your destiny is to rule over all spiritual powers with Christ, that every geography on earth you will turn over for the kingdom of God, that only loyal sons of God will displace the disloyal, that you need insight into. That you need empowerment for. That gives you a purpose on earth. Come on, somebody say, that's good. That's good. Say, there's more. There's Look more. at verse 19. And. Everything that Eris just said. And. Come on now. Everything that you've heard. And. His incomparably great power for us who believe. You can't even compare this power. There's nothing that I can explain it to you with. There's nothing that I can set it in opposition to. It is incomparably great power for us who believe. That power. Somebody say that power. That power. Is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Come on now, church. 
The issue is, is you got real power, but it's for those. That real power is for those who are doing the real work of the kingdom. Man, I haven't seen that kind of power. Maybe it's because you haven't really been working for the kingdom. Quit sitting on your salvation and do something. See, this is the same level. This incomparably great power is the same power. Somebody say, same power. Same Same power. power. That actually resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. Tell me what you can't do. Tell me what you don't have. You have the incomparably great power, this real power that is ready for you as you are doing the real work of the kingdom. It's so hard, Pastor. It's so hard. All I have to do is believe, and that's too hard. What have you not tasted of? You don't know who you are. You don't know what you're supposed to be filled with. See, when you teach this and people actually pray for insight into it, you don't turn out a bunch of neatly tied little pastries because you haven't reduced the gospel to a vacuum cleaner salesmanship. Come on. You're enlisting soldiers into an actual war. They know what they're getting into. And the same man that enlists them must participate in training them or it is not the gospel. We make disciples. We do not make converts. Amen. Amen. And let's continue in verse 21. Christ was seated far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. See, saints, Jesus is presented as above all. And you are called above all. Amen. It's our job, our responsibility to match where Jesus is seated. We're to rise where he is so that we rule and reign with him. See, both you and Jesus share the same destiny. You're born of the human race. You're filled with the power of God. You are to be ruling over all that God has ever created. Man, that's good. Not one ounce of it left unruled. See, Jesus was elevated above all so that we could be elevated above all. Let's continue in verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Church, you are the feet on the body of Christ. Maybe that's why Paul continued to remind the Ephesian church in the 6th chapter. I can't bear to see one more person starting to fall asleep. Y'all stand on your feet for a minute. I, I'm telling you, uh, it's, I, I love everybody enough to make you uncomfortable. I, it doesn't, I, we're not doing this to entertain ourselves. Uh, pick up your left foot, stomp it down. Pick up your right foot, stomp it down. Jesus Christ put his foot on the neck of the enemy just like Joshua did. Just like Joshua 10 says that he did. Romans 16 says your foot is the other shoe to drop. Man, you won't be able to rule over the creation if you can't rule over your flesh for 66 minutes. Okay? Is everybody awake now? Or do you need your, do you need your neighbor to slap you? Need it, need, somebody gotta get a stun gun out? Okay, amen. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, amen. Somebody give a shout to God. Now be seated and we will finish the message. I told you that Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 6 had a connection that we wanted you to see. A connection that will help you understand this. Let's begin in Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not, somebody say not, not, against flesh and blood. 
but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Don't mistake something. Because the last category he mentions being in the heavenly realms does not mean that all of the categories are not in the heavenly realms. After all, he starts off by saying specifically, I'm not talking about flesh and blood. So what do you think he's talking about? Spiritual powers. We want to show you these side by side on a slide. In Ephesians 1, they're called rule. In Ephesians 6.12, rulers. You see, authority becomes authorities. Power becomes powers. Dominion becomes spiritual forces. Come on. This seems to indicate four levels of opposition. The top word, rule, is similar to what we've been talking about all day long. It's a variation of archon. It is a, like a god over a nation. Okay? We are called to fight through all of these. Let me give you some examples because we're running short on time. But I want you to actually write them down. Go see if what I'm saying is true. Paul had so upset the celestial opposition while he was staying in Ephesus that you can read for yourself in Acts 19. A demon is recorded as saying to the seven sons of Sceva, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Kind of humorous, the demon beats up the others that probably raised their hand in a decision card and had no idea they were in a spiritual and geographical war. But that's not my point. My point is that when Paul entered Ephesus, he was a threat to the archon that was holding the people captive. Paul, as a son of God, when he entered, he was a threat to every spiritual power there. This becomes even more evident as you read Acts 19. What are you going to go home and read? Acts 19. Because the charge that is being leveled against Paul, read it specifically. A guy named Demetrius says that Artemis, the archon over Ephesus, would be robbed of her divine majesty if Paul was allowed to continue. See, Paul was serious about taking down celestial powers. He was serious about liberating people and enlisting them in a war. He was not a tract distributor. He was not a vacuum cleaner salesman. Paul actually won disciples. And he trained them for warfare. Listen, he had such a profound effect on this geographical region. I've been there. I've seen it. He so profoundly changed it that the Ephesians themselves who were liberated from their celestial seducing captors, they responded. They burned their magic books, their sorcery books. They burned them. The the recording of Luke says that it was 50,000 denarii, 50,000 days wages worth. They wanted no more part of this seducing celestial power. They were now being enlisted into the army of God. This was not a decision to believe in Christ. This was the enlistment of a son, soldier, army of Christ. Come on, church. You can, anybody want to be like Paul and his impact? Yes. You realize Paul didn't just roll into Ephesus and do that on day one, right? 
Read, when you read Acts 19, look at how long he stayed there. He stayed in the synagogue months, months upon months of teaching, of reading and seeing the same people, of working through things. And then years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Years. He spent years developing, years working this, years fighting for it. And then you get to some of these things. How short-sighted are we? We want to, today, I'm going to come down to the altar pastor and I will be like Paul. Well, amen, set that as your goal, but understand what Paul was. He spent years developing the relationships. He spent years making disciples that were just like him. That's how you're going to be like him. Look, when Paul lists these rulers and authorities and powers and spiritual dominators, it is important not to generalize this to all demons or relegate it as some type of Milton, paradise lost, science fiction. See, Paul was describing real spiritual geographical warfare. He had an understanding. He had Jewish thoughts in mind. He understood the Roman perspective. He knew the Greek thought. He was merging all these as he was beginning to speak. But I I really do think that he had Esther 9 and verse 3 in mind. Let me just put it on the screen to save time. Even all the princes. Somebody say princes. Princes. Archon. Right there. Of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were... Doing the king's business. Assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen upon them. Look, we're going to show you another slide so we can put these two concepts together. See, in Esther we see that there were princes. In Ephesians we understood that they were rulers. Satraps. Governors. Those who were doing the king's business. Let me help you to align these. Let me help you to get the concept. Somebody say concept. Concept. See, the princes are the archon. These are probably the lesser gods, these lower level Elohim that were the gods over national geographies. The satraps were those that had the authority over large regions. The governors, much like what we would think of a governor in our day and time, had the power over something that would be called a state. Then those doing the king's business, these were the lower level spiritual forces. They were the spiritual dominators that were actually engaging with the people, wreaking havoc in the localized smaller regions. Can you see this parallel here? Can you see the concept that we're trying to communicate? Church, the Apostle Paul is clearly wanting us to know that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against these celestial beings, and it is for the flesh and blood captives of their seduction. See, Yahweh is reclaiming the nations from the ground up through you. He begins his judgment from the heavens down, but he begins his redemption from the ground up. Look, we are nearing our closing, and it's paramount that your view becomes consistent with the biblical account. Because that's the only way that your life will actually produce God's will for your life. To just continue in what you've always had because it's familiar is not only cowardly, it'll be inexcusable because you won't accomplish God's will. Some of you believe you understand this, and I know for sure that you don't. I love you enough to tell you that. These are things that need to be contemplated by the people in the room because your mode of ministry is wrong, your understanding of the spiritual realm is wrong, and it makes you easily manipulatable through disobedience, and we don't want that. We are raising a sun soldier army that will never bow the knee, that produces sun soldiers everywhere they go. I would like you to begin thinking about the actual conversion 
as the switching of sides in a military conflict, the enlistment of a soldier. The next time somebody quotes Romans 9, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Put it in context. If you are confessing that out of all of the spiritual powers that are out there, Jesus is the only archon, the only deity that you will listen to, that he is the master, owner, and controller of all of your actions, and you believe in your heart that him being raised from the dead is your guarantee that you will rise with him to rule with him, if that is what you're believing in your heart, then you will be saved, which means become a part of God's ruling agency on earth. But reducing Romans 10, 9, and 10 to a kind of abracadabra statement that some idiot says on a street corner and forgets within a month, that's not an army. That's not even sonship. All that is, is uh, kind of a stimulating event. I've done it. I still do it. I want you to preach everywhere you go. I am not against street evangelism. I am not against workplace event. I'm not against evangelism anywhere. But you have to evangelize into the right thing. Yeah. You, you cannot bait and switch people. You, you cannot, hey, do you want help in this life and heaven next? Because Jesus loves you no matter what you do and he just wants to save you like you want to hug a puppy. You can't do that. You cannot tell somebody, hey, there are only four spiritual laws. If you accept them, you're good to go. You have to treat this more like it were an actual military campaign aimed at taking over the entire planet. This is why the disciples that I have raised up through the years raise up disciples. Yeah. Because I have never treated the gospel like a sales presentation. It's not. In fact, I do not want to spend eternity with some of the people that claim to have accepted a bubblegum gospel. I I don't. I don't like them now, and I'm fearful that I wouldn't like spending eternity with them. Mm. But if they actually picked up spiritual armament, if they actually began advancing, well, that would be a whole different story, but they never will if we don't tell them. Come Come on. Think of conversion as enlistment into an army, which will take you to the next step. Come on. Can you understand what, what Eric is speaking to us today? Do you even want somebody in a foxhole with you? See, that's the problem is you don't view yourself as in a foxhole. We'll take anybody who will come. No, I want somebody who's willing to be trained because my life is going to maybe, yes. maybe handing on what they do. See, this leads us to baptism. See, the idea of baptism of the way we've used it before, I want to encourage you today that when you're thinking about baptisms... When you're thinking about baptisms in water and baptism in the spirit, what you have is a declaration of war. Man, what a different thought from us. Can can we have this just nice moment where we have a a special religious event where we dunk you in water and now you get wet? Fantastic. No, this is the time where weaponry is being placed in your hands. It's where the loyal sons get weapons so they can dislodge the disloyal sons. Come on. Man, it makes me think of, of our friends in India. It makes me think of the Vincents in Indonesia. Do you know what? Them being there is technically illegal. But you know what? They don't have really very many difficulties when they're just speaking to someone about Jesus Christ. 
They can tell officials, yes, I'm a Christian. Do you know where the, the problem comes in? Do you know where they're about to be arrested and thrown in jail is? Is when you make a convert by seeing them baptized. Yeah. The heavenlies understand these other demonic forces and, and, and powers, rulers, authorities. These archons understand something has now changed. They just made a declaration of war against us, these di- disobedient spirits. And they begin to get in trouble. Anand, Israel, gets in trouble immediately when there's a baptism. Brent Vincent gets in trouble immediately if they find out that there's a baptism. Why? Oh, because those are... No, it's because there's something going on in the heavenly realm. It is a declaration of war. As a matter of fact, on the, on the mission field, it's often that when you see someone baptized in water, you may see the demons that they have be cast out in that moment. In that moment, there's something that happens. And then they're empowered by the Spirit. Is oftentimes a water baptism is empowered by the Spirit baptism in those same moments. Why, church? Because baptisms are a declaration of war. With baptisms being a declaration of war, discipleship is training for war. See, within discipleship, you are teaching the sons that are soldiers how to reach the true destiny of all believers. And that's namely rulership over every power in heaven and on earth with Jesus as our only superior and sovereign. Discipleship starts in this way. It teaches you to have dominion over your own body. Taking authority over every thought, every emotion that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and ruling over it with complete domination. Discipleship then teaches you to ensure shalom with your spouse. Come on. Knowing in a predictable pattern that I will implement these things that I am learning, that I am watching, that I am modeling, and it will guarantee shalom immediately within my own home. Discipleship teaches you to direct your children in their callings. Begin to steer them to the destiny that God has ordained for them and nobody else. You see, training for dominion over the earth begins with establishing dominion over your own sinful nature. What does victory look like? Well, there are many battles in a war. Your first victory is when you have victory over your own body. Your second victory is when you have victory in your relationship with your spouse. Your third victory would be when you have victory in properly teaching your children to win. Your next victory would be when within your sphere of influence, you're beginning to kick down evil behavior prompted by spiritual beings and take captives away from them. Victory is achieved for the creation when everything is completely subject to our God, His Messiah, and we the body of Christ. Your next homework... Read Corinthians 15. The entire chapter describes what the gospel is. Not the first four verses. The entire chapter. Look, you can't move on to victory in the creation without victory amongst your children. You cannot move on to victory with your children without getting victory with your spouse. This discipleship is in an order for a reason. It's so that our son soldiers are not sacrificed to Molech. We have trained them properly and they're more than a match for him. Come on. Church, as you begin to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, I want you to, want you to have the bright perspective here. Knowing what you now know. Knowing what you now know, perhaps you'll be able to see what Peter is drawing your attention to in this description of baptism as a declaration of war. 
This we, is literally our closing. And I promise you haven't understood this scripture in the way we're about to explain it. So again, whatever you have to do. It's 1226. You will still beat the Methodist home. It'll be fine. Actually, they've been home for an hour. It doesn't matter. So give up on that. We make no apologies for what we're bringing to you today. We make zero apologies for this. What we're saying, the amount of time, I promise you that this is the kind of message. I can feel the struggles inside of some of you in the spirit realm. I can feel it right now. I can feel that your life is hanging in the balance of you understanding these things. It will put you on a different trajectory. We're not going to apologize for giving you the word of God. We're not going to apologize for sharing with you what God put in our hearts. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. He has put to death. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. See, my union with the crucifixion is an enlistment oath. So what He did is He gave His blood for me, the righteous for the unrighteous. And now that I've been brought to God, I vow to give my blood so that the nations may hear. I vow that. See, He died in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit. Church, what I'm saying is even if I should die in this pursuit, I will be raised with him as a ruler, an archon of the creation. Is anybody in this house want to join me in that? Church, do you want to be victorious? Let's continue in verse 19 and see how this takes place. Through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Whoa. Oh, this is an attitude of confidence, victorious confidence. See, Jesus couldn't be stopped by the heavenly powers. And guess what, church? Neither can I. Neither can you. They were to subvert, to thwart, and stop Jesus, but they were unsuccessful. They will not succeed against me nor against you either. See, Jesus looked in triumph on them. And so shall I. Today... We need an attitude that says, I declare war on the heavenly powers in the name of Jesus, whom I serve, and victory is my goal. Amen. Remember that Peter is discussing baptism in this passage, but he's also discussing spirits in prison. He's also discussing the crucifixion of Messiah. And now in verse 20, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Notice that Peter associates the spiritual rebellion with the days of Noah. Noah's obedience resulted in salvation for others, and so will mine. In other words, baptism is like Noah's obedience surrounded by spiritual powers that were disobedient. You come out of the water an obedient son like he did, an obedient nation like Jesus, like the Israelites going through the Red Sea. And you are now at war with the things that were at war with God. Disloyal sons of God tried to corrupt the human race. It is my job to defeat them and to see the perfection of the human race. Listen, I will stand in judgment of these angels and all who follow their examples. 
And you were called to that same station. It's just that people didn't tell you when you got born again. And so you didn't know how high you were to aim. This is baptism language. Yeah. At baptism. Wow. Not when you get your doctorate. Come on. At baptism. We need to know what we've gotten ourselves into. Because I intend to win. Amen. Come on now, verse 21. And this water symbolizes baptism. (laughs) Not sprinkling, but a baptism that now saves you also. How can you be sprinkled into war? You have to be baptized into war. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Church, my pledge of a good conscience is my firm commitment to spiritual geographical warfare. My baptism was not a spiritual bath. It was a declaration of war. See, Israel came out of the waters and displaced the gods of the nation. And I will also. My commitment is unwavering. So my destiny can't be stopped. I declare war. Is there anyone who wants to declare war today? Let's continue in verse 21. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Church, we must understand that the only archon that I serve, that you serve, has already shown us the path to victory. We must determine that we will follow in His footsteps and become His feet on earth, stepping on spiritual, geographical enemies of God. He is above them. I am in Him and He in me, which means they are subject to me as they are to Him. We have the ability to show complete dominance over them. We must determine that we will remove their seductive influence on the people that God has called us to. Because Jesus has been raised to the right hand of God and so shall we. Do you have a different view of Peter's view of baptism now? Yes. Okay. We are at our closing, but I want to give you a different view of three scriptures in Revelation. It'd be easy. It's just one book. It's the last book in the Bible. I'm going to begin in Revelation 1.5. Our discipleship is aimed at this kind of declaration of war. It is the destiny of a disciple. Yeah. Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus faithfully witnessed the will of the Father on earth, and so will I. And so must you. Jesus was the first to rise in a glorified body from the dead. And so will I. And so must you. Amen. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I will be a king with him. And you are called to be a king with him. Yes. And that is why he is called the king of kings. Not the king of the recipient of a vacuum cleaner salesman's pitch. You are being called to actual kingship. Come on. And it requires you to be a faithful witness. To rise from the dead. And to take your stand with the king of kings as a king beside him. Ruling and reigning the earth. Amen. Revelation 22.16 says this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. 
See, Jesus as a human was made a little lower than the angels, but rose above them all as the morning star. This is the destiny. Somebody say destiny. Destiny. It's the destiny of every disciple who declares war and overcomes. See, you have to never, ever, ever forget. He did this as a member of the family of David. He did this as the family, part of the tribe of Judah, part of the nation of Israel, and part of the human race. He has set the example for us of what we will and must become. Amen. Let's look at Revelation 2 and verse 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I receive authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Saints, this is what victory looks like. He is the morning star, and He will give you the morning star, meaning His status, His station, far above rule, authority, power, spiritual dominators, those subversible, subversive celestial sons of God. In light of what you've just heard, He is the morning star, and He will give you that station and status. In light of what you've just heard, knowing that To rise to be a king with Jesus, you first have to show dominion over your own body. You have to show shalom in your own relationship. You have to be able to disciple your own children. Not bring them to church. Disciple them. Then within your sphere of influence, you have to be able to take it from the enemy. You have to be able to transform the environment because you are a son of God and you have claimed it. Knowing that, let me ask, do you maybe need to examine where you stand? Do you maybe need to look at some of the levels of spiritual powers that have been beating you up personally? Been causing problems between you and your spouse? been keeping you from showing the kind of diligent that raises a sun soldier, and instead you've been raising a little monster? Do you need to look at the spiritual powers that are involved in your workplace and re-examine the way that you've looked at it? Because when you go there, you join in the frustration that they have. When you go there, you join in with them instead of turning it over like Paul turned over Ephesus. See, what is at stake is the high calling of every believer. Not the calling of these believers. The calling of every believer. If you do not overcome, you will not rule and reign with Jesus. That's not sad enough. In today's bubblegum reception, it's not sad enough. They're scared to hurt somebody's feelings. Well, I'm scared that you'll have a false sense of security and be on your way to a hellish life and a hellish afterlife. There is only one kind of person that rules and reigns with Jesus. Those that trust Him and depend on Him so much that He causes them to overcome. Are there obstacles in the way of your overcoming? Because now would be the time to take care of that. Perhaps instead of praying that you understand your calling, we should pray that you understand what's preventing it. So many believers had no idea that they had accepted John Milton's lies. 
I wonder how many things in your life you've accepted as just reality that are not supposed to be a part of your spiritual geographical warfare. Would you stand to your feet? In these last few days, because we've been teaching about those lower level Rephaim, all kinds of crazy chaos has happened. As we move through the spiritual levels, it's only increased. And you know what? We were born for it. We don't join in with it. We overcome it. But if there's an actual spiritual battle inside of a church, what do you think it's like out there? need to have your eyes opened. It's not that you have a learning disability. It's not that you just have a hard time remembering things. It's not that you're just not as diligent as you would like to be. Call it what it is, you're losing the war. And the same spirit that fell on Pentecost will enter you and make you into the kind of overcomer that Jesus is. It's just not as simple as pastors have made it sound. It's worse than basic training. It's more di- it, it requires the daily cutting away of your flesh. And it never stops. You never stop being trained. Unless, of course, you never even started being trained. Then you've already stopped. We're going to pray. And my, my heartfelt belief in putting these messages together with the pastors is that for some of you it will break loose in a new way. That something wakes you up from old habits that should not be there. From old dreams that were never God's dream for your life. For a stubborn tenacity to cling to sinful ideas that are not biblical, no matter how we present the truth. You need to identify what's holding you back and let the Lord come and cut it away. Father, we're asking right now in the name of Jesus that your spirit would move upon us. You are the spirit of holiness. And Lord, much of what we've done, we've simply done in ignorance because we didn't know. Lord, now knowing what we know, we're more aware of our dependency on you, not less. Lord, we didn't know how serious this was and we've taken it too lightly, but we need a serious infilling now. We need serious help from the heavens. Lord, will you anoint these men and women? Will you pour out your spirit on their marriages? Lord, will you rush in to rescue their child rearing? We need the generations of soldiers, mighty one. We need them. Help us, Lord, in our weakness. Help us where we have no power to face these powers. You are sufficient for us and we depend on you. Move on us now.